Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, straight from the source, breaking news as the U.S. and its allies are striking back with a massive bombing attack on Iranian-backed forces in Yemen and what could be a significant expansion of the war in the Middle East. Also tonight, it was a chaotic conclusion to Donald Trump's civil trial here in New York as the former president launched into his own closing argument and insulted the judge who will decide his fate. Also tonight, there are two goats saying goodbye after historic championship winning runs. Belichick may have had Brady, but Alabama had Nick Saban. And tonight, Broadway Joe is here. The legend, Joe Namath, will join me to talk about that remarkable legacy. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. And tonight we are witnessing an expansion of the war in the Middle East and what could be the beginning of a much more confrontational stance against an Iranian-backed militant group by the U.S. The White House confirming that the U.S. and a handful of its allies, including the United Kingdom, have carried out military strikes against multiple Houthi targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. It is a ferocious response, as you can see here from the videos that we are getting in, and it comes after months of drone and missile attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. President Biden said in a statement that he ordered these strikes after attacks had endangered U.S. personnel and also jeopardized trade in one of the world's most critical shipping lanes. He added that he won't hesitate to direct further measures. We have team coverage tonight of this breaking news. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live at the Pentagon. Also with us, CNN's military analyst, retired Army General Mark Hurtling. But first, I want to start with our chief national security analyst and anchor, Jim Shuda, who has new developments. And Jim, I know you've been speaking to officials about this. What are they saying about the strikes that were carried out tonight? Caitlin, this was a significant strike in terms of the forces employed, the targets struck, but also a senior U.S. military official says in terms of the damage, described that damage as significant. The primary participants, the U.S. and the U.K., with some support from other nations, Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain. That's notable, of course, because that is a country from the region there taking part uh, in this operation. The forces employed a combination of ships, uh, a U.S. nuclear-powered submarine, which is in the region firing cruise missiles, but also aircraft, uh, and that includes both U.S. and U.K. aircraft. The targets, uh, they were missile launching sites, radar sites, as well as UAV or drone launching sites. That's because it is the Houthi rebels that have been firing both missiles and drones at shipping in the channel for some days with a significant step up in those attacks, uh, those attacks on Tuesday, attacks that targeted U.S. ships 
including a U.S. ship, a senior administration official says, that was carrying a large amount of jet fuel at risk as a result of those strikes on Tuesday, attempted strikes, I should say, by the Houthi rebels. It could have been sunk. It was really Tuesday that was the catalyst for this. It was the step too far. And that's why you're seeing uh, this response tonight. Uh, We should note it may not be the last. A senior administration official said in so many words, this may not be the last word in terms of taking out these capabilities. And while these strikes were aimed at Houthi capabilities, these officials make clear that Iran is the guiding hand behind this, not just, Caitlin, in terms of giving permission or support. They say that Iran uh, was involved operationally in these attacks by Houthi forces on shipping in the Red Sea, providing intelligence, information, as well as some of the weapons systems. So that is one reason why this is significant. And as you say, Caitlin, represents an escalation because while the Houthis were the target, it is also a very strong message sent to Iran and raises the chance, at least, the danger, at least, uh, of a direct confrontation between those two powers. We're not there now, but that is always a risk when you have a strike on this scale and with this kind of target. Well, Jim, did they say anything about how they believe Iran could respond to this? They said that from the Houthi perspective, they would not be surprised. Again, I'm quoting there from a senior administration official to see some Houthi response. The fact is they don't know what Iran's response will be since the start of the war in Israel in October 7th, following those horrible uh, Hamas terror attacks. I've been asking U.S. officials what their read is of of Iran's intentions in terms of expanding this war. The consistent U.S. intelligence assessment has been that Iran does not want to expand this war into a direct confrontation rather with the U.S., that they prefer to use their proxies, the Houthis among them, but also Hezbollah, also Hamas, to project their power. That The trouble is making a hard judgment about what is a red line for Iran, or indeed what's a red line for the U.S., is not an exact science. So this is a significant attack against an Iranian proxy. Uh, The most likely outcome is that the Houthis are left to respond in kind, and the U.S. says it's prepared for that. Uh, But listen, this is a dangerous region with multiple fronts. And and of course, you have increasing military action, not just on the Red Sea, but also on the northern border of Israel with another Iranian proxy, Hezbollah, there and concern about an expansion of the war there. We're not there yet, but U.S. intelligence has been watching this very closely. And while their assessment to date has been that Iran does not want to get involved directly, it's impossible to judge with certainty how Iran will respond to this themselves. And General Hurtling, this is something that, as Jim noted, the White House had been trying to to kind of avoid and de-escalate for months. I mean, what do you make of the fact that there were these multinational warnings to the Houthis telling them to stop this, and yet the attacks continued, leading to what we're seeing playing out tonight? Caitlin, I'd say that's the most important part of all this. The initial operation was meant to deter uh, any kind of action against Israel. That expanded. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying, hey, why isn't the U.S. striking back? Uh, First of all, these missions are very difficult to conduct. There's a lot of moving parts in there. But I think the president made the decision to try and get multinational forces involved. Why is that? First of all, to show the Houthis the power of the multinational force. And I think we're going to see... uh, the exhibits of that once the day daylight comes up tomorrow morning and they begin to get bomb damage assessment. But also, as Jim just said, this is a message to Iran. 
don't get involved in this and call your boys off, uh, the, the Houthis, the PMF, uh, some of the other forces like Hezbollah, because we will get involved with an overwhelming force of multinational partners to include one Arab partner in Bahrain. Uh, you know, when you put that kind of force uh, in a proportionate response, but I would suggest we're going to see tomorrow, this was more than a proportionate response. Uh, the Houthis are going to take notice of it, but the Iranians are too. They know that if they get more deeply involved in this fight, that they're going to be facing a multinational coalition against them to prevent them from doing that. And I should note, this is a group that once was labeled by the U.S. as a terrorist organization that was lifted in 2021 by the Biden administration. But General, what do you make of when you look at who was part of this coalition tonight that played a role in this? Saudi Arabia is not listed. Well, Saudi Arabia was not, and probably purposely so. And that's because, Kate, and a lot, of, a lot of people don't know the history of the fight in Yemen. This has been going on as a civil war since 2014. And it has literally been Saudi Arabia versus Iran through their proxies. Well, recently, within the last year plus, uh, there have been some movements in solving that civil war. And in fact, last April, uh, there was a ceasefire that went into effect. So both Saudi Arabia and Iran came together during that period and started having conversations about ending this civil war. So I would suggest that Saudi Arabia didn't get involved uh, because they didn't want to inflame the Iranian forces to say, hey, here's our old enemy continuing the fight against the Houthis. So yeah, this is, this is extremely complicated. And you have to remember too, that the Houthis do not represent the government of Yemen. It is a civil war force and, and they are- yeah basically continuing to conduct operation against the standing government. And Orrin Lieberman, you're at the Pentagon for us. I know that we have just gotten a statement from Defense Secretary Austin, who I should know is remaining, remains hospitalized tonight as all this is going on. What are you hearing from the Pentagon tonight? Well, according to a defense official, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been very engaged over the course of the past 72 hours, even as he was at the hospital, not only planning these strikes, but giving the order today to uh, CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command, to execute these strikes. Over the course of the past several days, since Tuesday's massive uh, barrage from the Houthis, uh, Austin has been in touch with the CENTCOM commander, General Carrilla, as well as the National Security Council, holding multiple calls a day there. He has also spoken to the president twice since Tuesday. As these strikes were being planned, he gave again that final order to execute the strikes earlier today, then was able to monitor the strikes in real time, according to a defense official, even as he was at the hospital where he was able to uh, maintain communications through the secure comms that they have at Walter Reed. So Austin very much engaged on the planning and the execution of these strikes as we saw them carried out, getting word shortly after they began that the U.S. and the U.K. and other, with the backing of others had begun uh, to carry out these strikes. A senior military official saying uh, the damage to Houthi assets, what had been targeted, radar sites, and the sorts of weapons that had been used to carry out strikes on shipping, the damage to those Houthi assets was, quote, significant. Yeah, I mean, this is causing such a real issue, uh, you know, in the Red Sea with, you know, some of the world's biggest shippers who were having to take different routes. It was costing more, it was taking longer. And you're, so you were seeing the real impact for some of these ships that had nothing, they had no ties to Israel. You know, Orrin, one thing that, that we had heard, though, was criticism mm -hmm. from Republicans who were saying, you know, this should have happened sooner, that this took too long. I mean, what is the sense inside the Pentagon of whether or not this really will be that deterrence that they were seeking? 
Well, the Pentagon is very much ready for the possibility that this doesn't deter the Houthis. It's worth noting that they put out a statement saying they've already responded to these attacks, although Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder came on CNN a short time ago saying they haven't seen any attack from the Houthis targeting uh, U.S. assets in the Red Sea. But that's not the only option. Of course, the U.S. could, uh, I'm sorry, the Houthis could try to target U.S. allies. They have ballistic missiles. They could try to target Israel. In fact, they have, and U.S. ships as well as the Israelis have shot down those attacks in the past. And this is something the U.S. has is prepared for. There is very much the possibility that, that the Houthis were not only ready for this possibilities, uh, possibility, but were egging it on. There are some officials and analysts who have said, look, the Houthis thrive at war, and this may be what they were looking for. That's certainly not mm -hmm. definitive, but it gives you the perspective on the Houthis, that they were ready for the possibility of war and very much preparing for that possibility, and that the message of deterrence the U.S. tried to send, not just unilaterally, but multilaterally here, is not something the Houthis are willing to hear right now. According to the U.S., that's something that Iran, a calculation that Iran figures into as well, but it was very purposeful that the U.S. didn't act on its own here and that it had a coalition backing it. You're absolutely yeah. right to start this question with Republicans having demanded a response earlier, but it is significant, and certainly it took time to put it together, that this was not just a U.S. action. Yeah, multiple coalitions here involved. We'll wait to see, uh, of course, what that reaction on Capitol Hill is. We're already seeing some reaction. Oren Lieberman, Jim Shuto, General Mark Hurtling, thank you all for joining tonight. Ahead here on The Source, there's a new courtroom showdown from the former president. He wasn't expected to give a closing statement at his civil fraud trial today, but he did, breaking nearly every rule that the judge had laid out for him to do so. Also, he is now boasting about his role that he played, a central one in overturning Roe versus Wade. A question is how that affects him at the ballot box like it has others in, the, in, in his party. With four days to go before the first votes are cast in Iowa, Donald Trump brought the campaign trail to the courthouse today with his whole empire at stake in the Empire State. The closing arguments at his civil fraud trial creating another spectacle that the judge had been trying to prevent initially. Trump was not supposed to deliver a closing statement, and he and his legal team had not agreed to conditions that had been laid out by the judge here, Arthur Engoron. But... During the closing arguments in that courthouse today, one of Trump's attorneys, Chris Kyes, asked the judge if he would reconsider and let his client speak for two or three minutes. The judge relented, but saying only if Trump would promise to keep to the facts of the case. That, unsurprisingly, did not happen as the former president immediately launched into a diatribe, voicing the grievances that we've heard before, his argument that he is being persecuted here. He also attacked the judge again, basically blowing past the rules that had been laid out, one, not to comment on irrelevant matters. Two, not to impugn him. And also not to deliver a campaign speech in court. At one point, the judge interrupted the former president and asked his attorney to, quote, please control your client. After five minutes, he was then cut off. But when the courtroom doors opened, Trump repeated it again, this time in front of the cameras. This is a political witch hunt, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. They owe me damages for what they've done. We have a great company. We're a very innocent company. We did everything right. Everybody knows what I just said. This is a sham, and it's a shame. Later after that, we heard from the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. This case has never been about politics or personal vendetta or about name-calling. This case is about the facts 
and the law. And Mr. Donald Trump violated the law. I trust that justice will be done. Of course, Trump has already been found liable for fraud here, but James is seeking $370 million in disgorgement of profits and to bar Trump from doing business in New York. The judge told lawyers he will try to issue his ruling by the end of this month. And I'm joined now by a former federal prosecutor who is actually in the courtroom today, Christy Greenberg, as well as investigative journalist and author who spent years digging into Donald Trump's businesses and finances, David K. Johnston. Christy, I mean, you were in the courtroom today as this remarkable outburst, I guess we're calling it, of Trump's was happening. Uh, as someone who's been in plenty of closing arguments before, what did you make of, uh, of how that went? Well, it's so hard to sit there in the courtroom and see somebody just have so much disrespect for a judge, for the court of law, for how these proceedings are supposed to work. And, you know, the attacks on personal attacks on the judge, this is a judge who had a bomb threat this morning. That's why the, the amount of security that was in the courthouse was unlike anything I had seen. Um, and I had been More to other days. I had been other days when uh, various Trump family members had testified and this was heightened. They were, they were clearly very concerned about threats. So for him to make this kind of a personal attack, and then when the judge tells his lawyer to control your client, I'm waiting for the moment where the judge will control him and say, you're, you're done. And if you continue, you'll be held in contempt because that's what would happen to me or any other lawyer that was acting this way in court. It's just not done. And David K. Johnston, I mean, looking at this, obviously it's very clear that the, the campaign is bleeding into to Trump's legal troubles. But him being there today, you know, it's not just about the campaign. He, this is also really personal to him because really this is his entire, his brand, everything that he's kind of, you know, made himself of that is at stake here. Yeah, Donald is his money or the appearance of his money because a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. And so to Donald, this is much more threatening to who he is as a person than the criminal cases. He, he can explain those away. He can deal with those much better as a psychological matter than the suggestion that he is, he's not really a successful businessman. He's a, a liar, a cheat, and flater, and a crook who has to rely on, you know, million-dollar testimony that's utterly unbelievable about his finances. Uh, and Donald, remember, has, doesn't believe anybody should have authority over him. No one. No one. Absolutely no one. Uh, the judge, though, uh, speaking of authority over him, has a lot of discretion here. And so, I mean, what is, what is the end game in attacking the judge? Obviously, they're going to try to uh, appeal this, but... The judge is the one who's deciding what that number looks like when this is over. And they've decided since the judge has already made a decision as to persistent fraud that Trump and the Trump Organization and the other defendants are liable, uh, since he's already made that decision, they've just come out guns blazing and thinking that they will just create a record on appeal. Um, but the judge has a lot of discretion, not only as to liability about these other accounts, but also as to what the penalties look like here. You've got a potential lifetime ban from participating in real estate for Trump and, and um, McConney and Weisselberg. You've got disgorgement of ill-gotten gains and what that amount will be. He has a lot of discretion in terms of what calculation to use. Uh, so, you know, and then, yeah, there is this sense that, um, that, that if he is, you know, continued to be challenged, how, how, do, how does he separate that from, you know, his rulings? I think, I think it is hard. I think he will do his best. But, but when you're continuing to deal with these personal attacks and your cl law clerk is dealing with those personal attacks, it, it is, he's human. It's hard to separate it. Yeah. And were you surprised at all when how, how Trump's legal team and Trump himself handled this in the sense of like, 
They opened up the arguments today with Trump's team saying that he should get a medal. You've seen you've seen their arguments that they've been making publicly. I mean, would it have helped if Trump was more repentant if he had kind of said, I didn't mean to do this, I, I should have done this? There's no chance Donald would do that. Donald's lawyers are like Donald's appraisers. They do as instructed. And you have lawyers here who are willing to do things they know perfectly well are not going to fly in court because that's what Donald wants. So when Donald is in court, this is not about the law. This is about Donald, his campaign, and his ego. We'll see what that number does to, to his ego and what it means. David K. Johnston, Christie, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Ahead, as you heard, the former president also insisting today, talking on other legal challenges that he's facing, saying that he should have immunity against prosecution for anything he did while in office. One of the lawyers who represented him in his second impeachment will join me right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Even as Donald Trump walked out of that New York courtroom today where his civil financial trial was taking place, he was also answering other questions about the other legal troubles that he is facing, the ones of the criminal kind, in this claim that he has been making, that he cannot be prosecuted for anything he did while in office. On immunity, very simple. If a president of the United States does not have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective because he won't be able to do anything because it will mean he'll be prosecuted, strongly prosecuted perhaps, uh, as soon as he leaves office by, his, by the opposing party. So a president of the United States, I'm not talking just me, I'm talking any president has to have immunity. He has threatened to indict President Biden if he returns to office. But putting that aside for now, during Trump's impeachment, one of his own attorneys said this about this prospect of whether a former president could be prosecuted after their term ended. We have a judicial process in this country. We have an, an investigative process in this country to which no former office holder, holder is immune. That was David Schoen, who joins me now. David, thank you for being here. Can you tell me, you know, based on what you said then, does that not, what you argued then in front of the Senate, doesn't that contradict what Trump's attorney is arguing now? It doesn't contradict the point on the immunity. I, what I said is the investigative process and the judicial process have a place in this, and no president or party is immune from that. I believe that. I believe that's how the system of checks and balances works, but it's a limited inquiry. Where I disagree with Mr. Sauer's argument the other day is he took a, a second part of the argument to an extreme. In other words, two parts of the argument. One, under the case Nixon versus Fitzgerald, 
a president is absolutely immune from a prosecution, or in that case, civil actions, for actions taken in the outer perimeter of his official duties. I say President Trump is immune from criminal prosecution here for the matters at issue in the D.C. prosecution because those were quintessential official acts and certainly within the outer perimeter. Whether you agree or disagree with what he did, whether you think the information was good or bad, the immunity concept doesn't permit granular inquiry into whether he was right or wrong. He was entitled to be right or wrong about election fraud. The second part of the argument is the impeachment judgment clause says that a person who's impeached and convicted can then be prosecuted according to the law, so on. There's an argument to be made, there's a serious argument, that by implication, a person acquitted in the impeachment can't be prosecuted. The Justice Department did a $2,000, 2000 the year 2000 analysis of this issue, yeah. very thorough. But, okay, David, Sorry. but let me, let me just stop you there, because you call this granular. I don't think that people would say it's granular, but you're saying that there are parts of immunity if Trump's attorney is arguing that this pertained to his job. These were his official duties as yes. president. That is not, though, the argument that his attorney was making in court the other day. There was this hypothetical that one of the judges raised. Uh, of course, we all know it by now, that if a president ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill a political opponent, would they be immune from prosecution unless they were impeached and convicted? Yeah. Do you agree with that? No, I do not. Um, First of all, I, I couldn't possibly agree with it because my position, supported by many scholars and opposed by other scholars, is a person. once a person is out of office, he's not, he or she is not subject to impeachment. So it couldn't be that down the road, if a person, if a president was found to have in office ordered the hit on a political opponent, that president would then have to be impeached and convicted before it could be prosecuted. It wouldn't be an official act. There's no possible way any conception of immunity could see that within the outer perimeter of an official act. I think he wasn't so prepared for the- So how do you define official act though? Because I do think that is going to be one of the thorniest issues here uh, of, Trump is claiming that, even though I should note that Trump you know, later said he was working in his personal capacity as a candidate. But, but how do you define that? Because that is a major issue before this court right now. Yeah, I don't think there's any, any real definition of it. What the court said in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, for example, this is why I say there is a but limited inquiry. But that's a civil inquiry. case. It's different. That's right. That's right. But I think we're going to try to draw from those principles because it's not settled yet in the criminal. And it makes sense because the president has to have immunity for some of the reasons President Trump said. Um, he has to, it can't be having to look over his shoulder on decisions. Let's take, for example, Let's say um, Joe Bi President Biden made a decision about the border to let certain people in. That person then committed a crime. Some people might say cynically, well, he was acting as candidate Biden uh, because he wants to get more votes in the Latinx uh, community. Therefore, he made a decision. He should be able to be prosecuted. He would say, I made the decision as president of the United States as to what border policy should be. So we can't have all of those kinds of decisions but, second guessing. Know, the votes... A border policy is one thing, but but I mean, what's at the heart of this are the efforts that he took to stay in power. I mean, do you really think they're going to find that those were his official duties as president? I think they should. One way of characterizing it is to stay in power. The other is to faithfully make sure that the laws are faithfully executed. Under Article 2, he's got two duties, at least, under his oath and under the Take Care Clause. And again, whether you think he was right or wrong, or there was election fraud or not, um, he could have been completely wrong. He was still, that's part of an official act within his authority. The court said, when I say limited inquiry, the court in Nixon versus Fitzgerald said, yeah. there's a constitutional balance that the court has to determine and weigh the interests against the action. I think it's these just, were official actions. 
It's interesting that that was not the argument that his attorney made in court then. Instead of focusing instead of focusing on, on this that was raised by the judge, we do expect them to get a decision. When, when we hear from them, we'll bring you back. David Schoen, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Now on to another story that hits close to home here. Joe Namath is going to join us next. Yes, I said Joe Namath. We have something very big to talk about, the retirement of the legendary Nick Saban from Alabama. That's us outside the White House there. Was once lucky enough to meet him. Also, maybe try out a few of the national championship rings. We'll t look back at his remarkable legacy coming up right after this. We are witnessing the departure of two giants in the world of football. In the NFL, Bill Belichick, no longer the head coach of the New England Patriots after 24 seasons and six Super Bowl wins. But in the world of college football, my world, I keep remembering this scene from January 3rd, 2007, when a plane carrying the athletic director of the University of Alabama landed in Tuscaloosa with a special guest on board, Nick Saban. That it'll be our goal to um, give you the kind of football program, the kind of football team that you can be proud of. Thousands of people had gathered at that regional airport just to get a glimpse of the new head coach. But little did anyone know in the crowd that day or realize that that would change the city of Tuscaloosa forever, also the game of college football. But Coach Saban, who announced yesterday that he is retiring after 17 seasons, did for the city, for the school, and for the state. It's hard to measure. Yeah, you could count the six national championships, the nine SEC championships, that 120-18 record when the conference was at its fiercest, or the four Heisman Trophy winners that he coached. But in addition to cementing his place as the greatest college football coach in modern history, Saban was also a leader who breathed new life into the school. In the 17 seasons that he was there, the enrollment at the school exploded. Over half the freshman class now comes from out of state. But again, those are just numbers. Off the field, he was just as memorable. And it takes an Alabama legend to put his legend into perspective. And I can't tell you how excited I am to have the legendary Joe Namath joining me tonight. Thank you so much for being here. I just wonder how you're reflecting on Saban's 17 seasons and what he meant to the school. Well, Caitlin, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, and roll tide to you too. Uh, we love Nick, you know, and uh, we hated to see this end. Uh, I, I think about Mel Moore, our athletic director, whenever we trying to get Nick away from pro ball to come to Tuscaloosa. Mel would stay down there in Miami and just, uh, well, he wore Nick down to where Nick finally gave in. Uh, but it brings back some wonderful memories of Mel Moore and Coach Saban, man. Uh, I've known him since his days uh, at Michigan State. And he brought more pride back to our campus uh, than we thought was possible. How do you think he was able to do that, to, to leave such an imprint, not just on the school, but, but on the sport, period? Yeah, you know, well, first of all, I'd have to say Terry had a lot to do with this, too, you know. <laughs> yes. uh, team game, it's life of ours, the team game, football is a team game, and uh, Mrs. Saban Terry, uh, she had a lot to do with this. And so we got to give her some credit, too. And uh, winning, you never get tired of winning. I don't believe you'd always rather win than not. And Coach Saban, 
the way he went about business, the way he went about dealing with people, dealing with people, getting to know them and teaching them how to live the life or how to learn to live the life, to communicate, respect one another, and do the best you can at everything you do. You deserve to do the best you can for your family, for yourself and for your team and for your fellow students. Nick, uh, man, he, he's sensational. And you know that, Kate. I, it, the, it broke my heart to hear this news. I mean, everyone was kind of dreading it. You knew it's going to come at, at some point. But, you know, when you think about what these moments, these eras can mean for, for Tuscaloosa and Alabama, I mean, you played under one of the greatest coaches of all time. Bear Bryant. I just kind of wonder what similarities you ever saw in their their coaching styles, their presence on the field, you know, what you said there, their investment in these players as people, not just as players. Well, Coach Bryant, first of all, uh, he was a teacher. Nick was a teacher. I mean, they demanded respect for one another and to other people. Uh, Coach Bryant... Uh, Got that one from Coach Bryant, man. He gave he gave his seniors uh, a ring whenever we were finished, and it's still uh, uh, with my heart, man. But uh, Nick, uh, he taught the players how to own up to responsibilities. And, uh, you know, you play football for a while, but you got your life ahead of you. Off the field is so important. And the thing about Coach Saban is, he not only was a great man on the field, hands-on, coaching these guys, showing them how to do things, but he was getting them ready for the big game, the big game of life. And, and Terry was right there with him all along the way. A lot of talk about who steps in shoes like that. I mean, the, it's basically impossible. No one will be able to, to, to redo what he did. But what would your advice be to whoever Greg Byrne does pick to replace Nick Saban as the head coach? Well, Greg did, we did talk uh, uh, when Coach Saban was considering this or did it. Uh, and uh, well, I don't think anybody uh, is looking forward to trying to fill his shoes. You know, this is a challenging thing. Uh, I, it's gonna take a brave heart uh, to come in there because we truly expect the Crimson Tide to continue to be strong, continue to grow. Uh, my daughter Jessica and I are talking about it. That I, you know, it's a, who wants to come and take Nick Saban's place? You know, you can't take his place. It's, it's, uh, you got to be your own man. You got to be your own coach. You got to come in, not trying to mimic Nick, not trying to do the same things, but continually trying to educate the players on the field, winning ways and for the big game of life. Uh, I have no idea who uh, Greg is trying to reach out to to be our next coach, but it's it's a tough assignment for anybody to come in there and, and try to fill Nick's shoes. Absolutely. It's going to be the toughest assignment. Joe Namath, I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on the show tonight. I just want to thank you for, for giving us your time and, and sharing your thoughts with us. And Roll Tide, most importantly. Caitlin, thank you, girl. And Roll Tide is right. <laughs> have a good night. Also back here on The Source coming up next, we're going to get back to politics because Donald Trump may have just been handed a giant gift to the Biden campaign with this comment that he made the other night. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it. 
and I'm proud to have done it. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Former President Trump touting the central role that he played in the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe versus Wade. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. They wanted to get it back, right? You wouldn't be have that. There would be no question. Nobody else was going to get that done but me. And we did it. That was last night in Iowa. And the former president went on to say that he does support exceptions for rape, incest, and when the mother's life is in danger. But tonight we're seeing the real-life implications of the reversal of Roe and what it has meant for so many women across the United States. In Ohio, we have now learned that a grand jury has declined to indict a 33-year-old black woman for charges related to an at-home miscarriage. Brittany Watts was facing a felony after delivering and leaving a non-viable fetus at home in her bathroom after spending several days in the hospital. When she rushed back to the hospital after her miscarriage for treatment, staff members, nurses, called the police, who then charged her with felony abuse of a corpse. The case just highlighted the extent to which prosecutors can charge a woman whose pregnancy has ended. Joining me tonight is the president for the Center for Reproductive Rights, Nancy Northup. And I just wonder, we're listening to Brittany's story and what happened to her. And she went to the hospital and they told her that there was some cardiac activity, but her fetus was non-viable. What do you make of the fact that she had to wait for this grand jury to make this decision here? You know, since September, when she had the miscarriage, Brittany should have been able to just mourn that pregnancy loss. Instead, she was charged with a felony. And none of this would have happened if she'd gotten the care at the hospital that she deserved to get. As you pointed, she was in and out of the hospital. She was there for eight hours after her water broke, waiting for the hospital to make a legal decision about whether that pregnancy could be terminated, which was medically indicated. So she went home and she had the miscarriage at home and ends up in the throngs of a criminal prosecution. You know, one thing that I've been focusing on lately is the exceptions here that we always hear governors touting. We heard it with Governor DeSantis last week. You heard Donald Trump doing it last night. But those exceptions are not always what they seem to be. They're, they're, they're sometimes pretty narrow, pretty limited, pretty difficult to actually make sure that you have the proper documentation to, to qualify for one. Yeah, here's what your viewers need to understand. Exceptions aren't real. I mean, the Center for Reproductive Rights is suing Texas and Idaho and Tennessee about the fact that although they have exceptions, that women are not able to get abortions when they have medically indicated reasons, when they have a pregnancy that has is miscarrying, as happened with uh, Ms. Watts, when they have fatal fetal abnormalities that threaten their health and their future fertility, and the pregnancy is hopeless. I mean, in Texas, we saw it last December with our client, Kate Cox, who we took it to the Texas Supreme Court saying, you know, she had a fatal fetal diagnosis. Her health was on the line. She wanted to have more kids. She was in risking 
uterine rupture, and a hysterectomy. All these things. And she had to leave the state of Texas. So those exceptions, I mean, the attorney general of Texas said he was going to prosecute, you know, any hospital that gave her an abortion. They're not real. Nancy North, the stark message. Thank you for joining tonight. Thank you. Up next, there was a telling answer from a prominent moderate member of the Republican Party to this question. If Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination as a convicted felon, would you still vote for him? That answer ahead. If Jack Smith gets his way in court and Donald Trump supporters get their way at the ballot box, we could potentially see someone who is a convicted felon atop the Republican presidential ticket in the election. Last night, one of Nikki Haley's most notable and prominent surrogates, the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, waited on what would happen if he is faced with that prospect and what he would do. His answer revealing about the current state of the GOP. Even if he's a convicted felon, if he is the Republican nominee, does that mean you're still gonna vote for him? Look, I think right now, most of America, it looks like they would they would vote for him because he's winning. He's busy. Biden is so bad that Trump is actually beating Biden in most polls. But what about okay, you, Governor? OK, so most Governor? of America is right there. Yeah, I'm going to support the Republican nominee. Absolutely. Here tonight, CNN senior political commentator Adam Kinzinger, a former congressman of Illinois and member of the January 6th committee. Congressman, were you surprised to hear Governor Sununu say that? I guess I, I, nothing surprises me anymore. I, I think, you know, I, what I was surprised about is how gleeful he was about it. Like, I mean, it's one thing, and it would still be wrong, but it's one thing for him to say, you know, look, I, I don't know, it would be a struggle. Yeah, I might support the Republican nominee, but he was all in. He's, oh, of course I will. Donald Trump is a danger to the country, and he, it didn't seem to phase him. I'll just say, you know, what is it worth to a man to gain the whole world, but lose your soul. I understand why he said it, because to survive in the current Republican Party, you have to pledge allegiance to the leader of the cult. But the gleeful aspect in which he said it was really surprising to me. Yeah. And I mean, he's now come on CNN since he was with Wolf Blitzer earlier saying, you know, it's a hypothetical. It's not, you know, really the focus of, of what they're doing right now, but it's not really that far-fetched of a hypothetical. No. I mean, he's supposed to be one of the more moderate members uh, of your party. Well, look, I just saw before I came on with you, Daryl Issa, you know, somewhat of a normal guy, pretty conservative, came out and said he fully endorses Donald Trump. This is now that this is the litmus test. I mean, uh, we're going to see probably in a week or two weeks, maybe Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire. I certainly hope she does. Um, but, uh, you know, Sununu will be less important then. And you'll see everybody jumping on the Trump train, those that haven't, because this is the cost of entry to the Republican Party. Caitlin, when I got elected, people told me in my district, the most hardcore Republicans said, go to Washington, D.C. and be your own man. Don't do what they tell you. It's amazing to watch that flipped to say like, oh, you can't go to D.C. and be your own man. You have to pledge allegiance to the leader of the cult. And it's sad. It's bad for the country. It's terrible for the party. You had said previously that, that you thought Chris Christie was telling the truth, that you liked him and, and supported him. Obviously, he has dropped out and suspended his campaign yesterday. What are you going to do now? Uh, nothing. I mean, I'm going to look, I, I think it's highly likely that it's going to be Biden against Trump. And in that case, there's there's no question who I would support. I believe in America way more than I believe in the Republican Party. I don't really believe in the Republican Party at the moment. I, I hope Nikki wins New Hampshire. I hope that leads to some momentum. 
anything to beat Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm not going to go out and aggressively campaign for her or anything like that. At the but you would vote for Joe Biden? Over Donald Trump in a heartbeat. I mean, to me, that's not even a question I would have to wrestle with. It, that, that wouldn't even be, to me, something that I would almost feel sick to do. Like, it is literally a decision at that moment between do you believe in a functioning democracy or do you not? And I think that's the only thing on the ballot. I think that is the only thing. You know, there's a guy running for president who has made it clear he doesn't care about the Constitution. He did that in action and in words. He's a victim of everything. He whines incessantly. He's always the victim of, of just every happening. Could I, We can't take that for another four years. America's exhausted. And as much as I disagree with Joe Biden on some things, like he doesn't hate democracy, and I appreciate that. It's striking to hear you say that. I mean, it's not surprising, I don't think, given, you know, what your last two years have been like, but but still striking to, you know, hear a former Republican congressman say, faced with that choice, this is this is what I would do. Adam Kinzinger, as always, thank you for, for coming on and for speaking your truth. You bet. See ya. Thank you all so much for joining us for what was a very busy news night. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.